0: Hello everyone and welcome to Risky Business's coverage of AusCert's 2011 conference here on the Gold Coast. I'm Patrick Gray. This coverage of the conference is brought to you by the fine folks at Microsoft. Uh, without their support, there would be no Risky Business Ossert podcast, so big thanks to them. You're about to hear a full presentation recorded at the AusCert conference – Scott McIntyre is a recent immigrant to Australia. He used to work for Excess for All in the Netherlands, uh, the ISP. But these days he works as the Senior Technology Architecture Specialist in Security Operations for Telstra in Melbourne. Uh, But his presentation is all about his personal views, though, not those of Telstra. Disclaimer, distance, blah, 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 etc. and so on. His talk focuses on what he calls the IT security generation gap. Too often are today's security policies written and enforced by people who don't get social media, the public internet, iPads and BitTorrent, among other buzzwordy things. But at the same time, anyone with an infrastructure to secure needs workable procedures and tooling to protect their data and systems. His talk covers common failings in this generation gap and provides guiding principles to close the gap and reduce exposure. So here's Scott McIntyre's presentation from day two of the OSCET conference here on the Goldie. Enjoy.
1: Right, so a couple of things. Some of you have probably heard me speak before, and you know that I tend to digress slightly on my talks. So I'm going to try to get most of the digressions up front, and I know that the only thing after me right now is several hours of empty time, otherwise known as bar time, before the dinner. So I can really take my time, and even though this is supposed to be a 40-minute talk or whatever, we'll be here for a few hours. Kidding. Um, So first of all, um, what you see there... Let's just make a slight update. Right? To make it completely and totally clear, I am not here in any way, shape, or form on behalf of Telstra, right? Got that? Not, not, not. Clear, private individual. This is not Telstra, got it? So ironically the reason I had to mention that is Telstra actually has a particular type of policy which says that if you're going to be speaking on behalf of the organization and I think most of you work for companies that might have something like this you have to go through a certain amount of either media training or submit uh, proposed presentations in a PowerPoint format yeah right that'll happen with me Um, and, and give a whole team of people the right to refuse your ability to speak of what you're an expert on. And I thought no. I was invited here to speak as me, so never mind. So this has nothing to do with Telstra. Hope that's entirely clear. Right, I almost didn't get here. Something kind of interesting happened if you try to use Virgin Blue's online booking and payment system, right? So they have two ways of paying, It'd either via credit card, or you can use a system called Poly. Now Poli has a really interesting way of determining whether or not your computer is secure enough for online transactions. First of all, if you're running a Mac, oh no, you're ruled right out. Guess what guys, right? So that was my first problem. Second of all, Safari, no chance. Can't run this site, you can't do electronic payments. Apparently that's not good enough. And I didn't have .NET installed because we all know that we need that for every online banking transaction that we conduct these days. And of course, the hallmark of good security, JavaScript, right? (laughs) So at least I had that going. So and, and, of course, they're verifying my time setting. So all of these things. So anyway, I, I had to find another way of paying. Right. So um, before I carry on, now we're entering the digression phase of my talk, if you weren't entirely clear. Now we are, right? Um, so I wanted to say thank you to OzSert. I wouldn't be here, and I mean that quite in the literal sense, without you. It's been a heck of a year for me. We're going to cover why it's been a heck of a year, just because I like talking about myself, and I've barricaded the doors, and you can't leave. Um, It's been a heck of a year for me, as well as for AusCert, and I think we all know about what's been going on there. So, what's been happening to me? Well, I started actually negotiating to work for the black box um, in 2009 after AusCert. It took a while to get things going. Now, you will see throughout my presentation these two words, sort of, right? There's a lot of magical things that can happen if you drop those two words at the end of a sentence. It's secure, sort of, congratulations, it's a boy, sort of, and so on. So when we started this process, as you can imagine, Telstra's a big organization, it took a little while to get things sorted out. Um, And it really only was after the end of last year's OSERT that it did. Um, Here's where it got really interesting. An acquaintance happened to email me on the 1st of December 2009, replying to a Craigslist ad. I think most of you know what Craigslist is, online classified forum. He was answering a post from someone else that was anonymous, and that person had a lot of details about me, looking for Scott, used to live in this area, you're moving to Amsterdam, Um, you're interested in blah, 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 wondering what happened to you. That friend of mine went ahead and replied to that article, to that posting, with a copy to me. He found my email address was this person named Nicole. We met online in Yahoo Chat in 1998. We lived less than 50 clicks from one another. We never met once, never spoke on the phone, nothing at all, right? Just some friendly chat about computers, films, and so on. She had the original iMac, Bondi Blue, 1998. That sort of dates things nicely. Life went on. I moved to Amsterdam. She went to university. Right, so, uh, life went on. There was a few emails in 2002 until that morning in 2009, Hundreds, thousands of emails later, we decided to meet for the first time last year, March, 2010. We hit it off. That was an understatement. So, <laughs> I think there's a special place in hell for me. Um, if it wasn't because I was working for ISPs in the past, I'm pretty sure I've got something down here. Called off her wedding, which was scheduled for just a few months later. That's the really important part, right? So we decided that it was time that I meet the parents. So there's a couple of things to think about there, right? And there's some good tales here, which we'll get around to the subject of my talk in a few moments. Don't worry. I arranged this trip to meet her family, and they—they her dad was a former marine, and I really was genuinely concerned about this, and I vocalized this to Nicole a number of times. Has he got a big shovel? Um, He has a pickup truck, right? So I'm already thinking he's going to carry me off to the desert. That's it. Creepy old guy from Amsterdam courting their much younger daughter than myself, and it's not looking good for Scott. And since we were in Las Vegas, yes, we did, and that was the place. And I'm happy to say there was no Elvis present. Um, And things really kicked into high gear at that point. This was last August and September. We got married, um, quit my job. Uh, We went on honeymoon to uh, sort of honeymoon, again, sort of, um, at the Marina Bay Sands in Singapore. Great view. Go swimming in their pool. It's pretty crazy. Um, It's been a heck of a year. And I honestly, you can't tell from back there, but tell it's true. My hair is actually growing back right in previous all sorts I'm saying oh the stress of this job I'm losing all my hair I used to have a full head of hair turns out all I needed was the love of a good woman who knew (laughs) Harold's son picked this up as well right so um, I'm a nerd at heart most of you know that my clothes certainly speak to that gosh the Telstra guys have been giving me a hard time about the wearing of shorts and no tie and all that stuff for speaking and all that not here on behalf of Telstra wear what I want be comfortable um I've moved back slightly from my hands-on operational role directly onto routers. I refuse to become, and this is a term I've made up a most so, a Microsoft Office Security Officer. And these are people who believe that they are operational when they log in to Microsoft Office every day. I need a little bit more interaction with the technology to consider myself to be worth breathing. Um, I will say that Telstra is a massive organization, hugely massive. It's been fantastic learning the clue. I am definitely having a lot of fun. My boss promised me it would be a complete change of scenery. I wouldn't have to deal with all of these problems that I had to deal with in Eastern Europe, crime games and gangs and all of that stuff. Um, Yeah, well, that didn't really last too long. Um, And as I think we all know, they're here to stay, Romanian games, doing skimmers. Same problems that I've had for a few years back in Europe. They're all down here. Um, and certainly as we look at online payment, unless you're using Poli, of course, um, (laughs) then we're gonna see a lot of card not present issues rising. So, getting a little bit more on track again, This is the infrastructure stream, and I'm actually trying to introduce a slightly different concept than what you're talking about when you think of hardware, maybe, or even software. I'm going to say that we've got a different type of insider threat, we've got a different type of infrastructure risk, and that is our policies and procedures and how we do our business as an IT industry and as a security industry. Basically I'm willing to accept some of the blame that we are part of the problem, perhaps the entire nature of the problem, and we'll get back to this in a little bit. so it is relevant. Try not to leave. This year's theme, as we all know, is overexposed. Not talking about the Kaspersky girls from Austria. They were pretty unique. Um, and certainly not just talking about Adobe as a form of flash. Um, I actually think the problem's a little bit more like this. I think that we're going through a phase of self-delusion about where the true nature of the exposures and the overexposures are coming from. Right? Um, we see that a lot of IT policy is formulated by misunderstandings or mis- perceptions of what they think the problem is. Um, I don't know if anybody here knows that this game sort of Chinese whispers is what they called it when I was a kid. I'd say something to Mark who would whisper it to Eric. And by the time it went all the way around the room, what was originally the core issue, maybe the incident of a computer security incident, is now something completely different. And unfortunately, the way that management works at large organizations, it really would have to go through all of you before the policymakers say, okay, we know the solution to the problem, we'll disable port 80, and the problem goes away. Um, and certainly a lot of policy is also formed by people misunderstanding things that they might read in the press. Um, and, and I think that, I hope that most of you in this room know that every time you see an IP address that happens to come from one of these types of places, doesn't mean that it's a big state-sponsored thing and they're out to get you. Um, if you talk to anybody who's been on the internet for a little while, and I've got a slide coming up here with some graphs, and we all like pretty pictures. Um, I think you'll understand that this is really business as usual. It's not that crazy, Um, and I think that we have to tone down some of the rhetoric that you're hearing from a lot of people about this shift from the insider threat to the external or outsider. There's been a lot of stories in the press over the last couple of weeks and I would actually say that most of these external threats, the things that the APTs are based on, the advanced persistent threat, most of these things are actually leveraging or taking advantage of the fact that we have internal failures, internal IT failures, internal policy failures, internal infrastructure failures, otherwise they wouldn't work. Now, just to slightly poke at RSA, this is all based on public information and they are by no means alone, um, but from what you can read on the internet public sources, the crux of the attack against them took advantage of the fact they were running Microsoft Office 2007 rather than 2010. Microsoft Security Response Center people had in their tech blog or whatever it's called, um, a summary saying, hey, look, in the 2010 version, we have the DEP stuff. It would have protected against this particular vulnerability and reduced their exposure. Now, I don't know the ins and the outs of it, but regardless of whether or not that specific element is is definitely true according to Microsoft and RSA's own blogs and so on, um, the core issue is still there are things that we could have been doing as an organization to reduce that overexposure. Why weren't they done? What failed in the process? And I think that it's all well and good to point the finger overseas and say, oh, these big bad guys, and we couldn't have done anything about it. It was very, very... Technically advanced and it was targeting very specific people. I'm not sure that's really the case. Um, I think that there was a process by which these things are successful that we can do things internally to minimize. Now, I mentioned earlier that in many cases these types of attacks are business as usual. Here's some data that I collected back in the '90s. Um, I don't. There was a, a presentation by the NCIS people. Um, Kyle. Kenton, I want to say, but it's Kyle, definitely. Great presentation on using GIS systems to sort of overlay um, information with other types types of data to look at, for example, crime with uh, enriched information. I started doing this using exactly the same product he was using, except this is version 3, ArcView 3. He was using version 10 from Esri. And I was doing this for computer security incidents back in the 90s, where I would see an incident coming from maybe China or Australia or wherever and overlay it with temporal information. And one of the things that this taught me was something quite interesting, was a cultural issue. Um, And I ended up creating these different enrichment fields to, to cover this. We had at the organization I was based, A lot of attacks, Fridays, sort of mid-morning. That was a peak of attacks. They're always coming from Israel. Why? Ah, the Sabbath has begun. The students at the universities knew there was nobody sitting around looking at their packets anymore and were getting away with all sorts of stuff Friday afternoon and Saturday, and then it went quiet again. Understanding that, I had to make phone calls and explain, look, we're seeing all this stuff. There's nobody here at this hour, that's why, and it all made sense. So as you start overlaying that information, things take on new new level of relevance. So, back to the theme are we exposing ourselves? We certainly need a more balanced approach to the way the policies and procedures are being handled. Um, I think that there's a lot of interest and need from people to generate and correlate information and and generate things that management understands, but the tools that generate the management porn don't necessarily make the geeks happy, right? Now, I have my own personal favorite. Upstairs, bronze, sponsor. But that's just a personal thing. Um, Communicating these needs and these wants often feels like this, right? The C-certs, the the little guy, he's got this great idea, he just wants to accomplish a goal, he just wants to get upstream. Unfortunately, management is there with all these, show me the business case, show me how much money it saves, show me all these things that aren't your area of expertise and you probably don't have an MBA for, and then I will consider releasing the budget or giving you what you want. And finding a way to bridge that is part of the problem. It's created a gap, and we'll come back to that in just a moment. I think there's also an increasing culture of management by spreadsheet. We have a lot of people who are, I'm sure you all know the mantra, say it after me, do more with less, right? And I think that as people look at security problems by an Excel spreadsheet and say, oh, well, this problem, this is how we decide how much money to spend on it. I'm not sure you're getting it. I'm not sure you're going to solve the problem if it just comes down to something that you can put into a spreadsheet. So I'm going to say that a lot of this is the mess of our own making. I think that policies and procedures and all of these types of things um, have really resulted in a situation which is a bit of a mess. We need to be able to, as nerds, convey to the people with wallets that there is a genuine business need, but we don't have the vocabulary to do it in a way that the suits and ties will necessarily understand. Um, We certainly have to break the lather, rinse, repeat um, cycle. I don't know if this is something that happened in Australia, but uh, as a child, this amused the heck out of me. Shampoo bottles used to say, lather, rinse, repeat. When do I stop? And Oh, right, gotcha. So anyway, saving a fortune on that, but I'm going to have to start spending it again. Um, so you have the issue now that the nerds, the person who can explain a SIN attack, may not understand why a seam is necessary or what it provides, because often they want to sit their, their console and looking at their TCP dumps or looking at the web logs or whatever is their area of IT security expertise. Um, and finally on this one, I've had a lot of fun with this one, by the way. Um, the first week I was here, I was saying routers way more than I'm saying it now. Um, <laughs> I guess it's too much watching home and away and neighbors and all of that. Right. So part of what I think the issue is is that we have an IT security generation gap. We've got the people who are interested in the social media sites. We've got the people interested in the Facebooks, the Twitters, and all that. You've heard a number of people talking about it in the last couple of days. There's a lot of interest in how do we secure the applications, how do we provide access to these, or do we? We have a lot of companies that have developed policies where they're scared. They don't understand. They want to lock it down. And I think any of you who have ever actually done hands-on looking at firewall logs, as soon as you try to forbid something, they'll find a darn clever way around it. Right? You've seen the way that people can actually do some forms of VPN tunneling and DNS packets by setting up their own bind server. I've used that trick in airports where they've had various lockdown systems where they don't lock down DNS. Great, fine. Had this thing running on my Linux box. and It was slow, but I was able to get around the security policies and score one for Scott. Um, But I think that as we move forward, we have to understand that these types of technologies, this new stuff, is not just really good for the business. It's what the customers want. It's what the customers expect. And sitting on our desktop, we have to find that balance that says that Mark can sit there on Facebook, but not all day. And I think that that's not a technical problem. That's not a technical solution that needs to be found necessarily. I think there's ways of, in, of working with Mark and say, you know, mate, you've been on Facebook now for eight and a half hours. Um, could you do something work-wise? Unless maybe his job is to actually work with the public and engage them and say, hey, look, we've got these computer security things. There's a role for that. Um, so in, in thinking about this and my various years of looking at these problems, I think a lot of it comes down to, I hope, in my mind, three fairly simple concepts, accountability, responsibility, and traceability. If we tried to focus our focus our Procedures and policies on these simple three elements, then we might be able to give a little bit more power back to the people in the workplace because we've got the accountability for their actions and we've got the way of doing the traceability. So rather than going purely with a deny all approach and trying to lock it all down, let's find out how we can still protect the network, protect the data. Let's focus on the information and who has access to it and why they have access to it. Look at those types of accounting systems and DLP or whatever you want to call it, rather than just assuming that because it's new, it must be blocked. I think that one of the hassles that I've certainly seen over the the last few years is the taxonomy issue. And I'm sure there's a lot of people in here see these terms. And people might come to me, if I had a job, which I don't, um, they might ask me, is this a policy? Well, what do you mean by that, and what do you think I mean by that if I were to say yes? Um, What is it you actually want to hear versus what is it I'm gonna tell you and then you're gonna try to get around? Um, There's people who talk about best practices and blueprints and templates and all these different terms. What they don't know is, what do I have to do? How do I deliver the product that makes us money as a company, that allows us to talk to our customers? How do I do these things? Unfortunately, most policies are written with, here's how you don't work. Here's how you're not allowed to use our corporate network. Here's how you're not allowed to access your email from home, rather than, here's how you do it right. And as I say at the very bottom, rather than asking, how can I stop people from doing things, ask instead, how can I help people do things better? And obviously, better means different things to different people, but it's a mixture of policy and procedures. It's a mixture of understanding. So at the very, very beginning, you may have noticed the title slide. My name is Scott A.X. McIntyre. Here's a funny story. When I started to tell a story, and this is, I think, okay to share, um, I hope, I'm not speaking on behalf of Telstra, right? Got that? Um, turns out their policy said that your email address I couldn't have Scott at Telstra.com. Boo! Um, not used to that type, but fine. Okay. Um, they said instead it had to be my first name a dot and then my surname because you know nobody has ununique names. It won't be any problems. <sighs> turns out it was. Um, not only was that a problem, but the next iteration of what the policy says to do was to include the middle initial. Well, that, too, was taken. Now, those of you who were at the uh, keynote yesterday morning when Bennett was talking about um, calling himself in that odd moment of, you know, hello, may I speak to Bennett Aaron speaking, I've done that, right? The other Scott Andrew McIntyre, same exact name who works at Telstra, he and I have chatted on the phone a couple of times. Um, but the iterate, and that's very odd um, the iterations just didn't work but it was a policy thing and I didn't want to have an email address that had like a .2, .3, .whatever I think that just looks silly um, and at some point I'm sure there's going to be a buffer overflow in email systems, right Going to run into IPv6 email addresses or something like that just to solve it where's Jeff, is he, anyway um, so I had to essentially find a clever workaround I changed my name I'm now Scott X McIntyre. So people say, what does the X stand for? Who
0: knows?
1: (laughs) And now that I'm a Scott X McIntyre, I've got a corporate Amex card with the same name. (laughs) Go figure. So I get every now and then his email, his phone calls, his meeting invites, which is kind of amusing. He's gotten mine a couple of times, not too often, um, as far as I know. Um, And unfortunately, once somebody has made the mistake and sent to me rather than him their Microsoft Outlook application continues to resend to the address that was last used, which continues to be me. And I keep saying, nope, still not the guy you're looking for. So, of course, that leads to them trying to recall the message. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> Doesn't work that way. It makes me giggle every single time. So, I had to throw in an obligatory slide about passwords, um, simply because I think that we're interested in, we're entering a, a even more confusing era with password policy and how to do authentication credential security due to outsourcing. I think that there might be policies within an organization for your internal applications. Maybe you've got Active Directory, LDAP, whatever, that all work wonderfully, but then an outsourced application, which might be critical to your infrastructure, has a completely different environment that you can't solve. The technology that they use isn't compatible with your own policies. For example, what if you have a policy which says your password has to look like that, but the outside company has one that says, oh, no, we don't take special characters. We'd only take capital letters at the beginning. Here's an example. This is a real-world example from a company I once worked with. Um, It said, okay, nope, your password must start with a capital letter, must end with a number, and must be less than 14 characters. I'd like to meet the person who came up with those very specific requirements. Not as much as I'd like to meet the ones who came up with these, right? (laughs) Right. You can scan some of these. This, this whole range here spells to me two words, input sanitation. Right. Whatever the application is that is receiving the passwords here obviously can't cope with the fact it's like, whoa, I can't un- escape that. I'm a little worried what might happen. So you have all these. I love, I love the idea of being able to put a pipe in a password and break an application, but that's another issue. And obviously topical to this um, and, and topical to the taxonomy issue, there was a recent Dilbert, um, and this one made me laugh out loud at work. Um, I lolled, <laughs> um, and it's exactly right. You know, people come to us as IT security practitioners, and they say, I want the best practice on the PIN code setting. What do you mean, PIN code or passcode? Uh, do you mean password or passphrase? And these types of questions, you get stuck in a cycle because you have different policies. At a previous job of mine back in the Netherlands for a certain unnamed provider, um, we had a customer who had a web page which had 0000 in the upper left-hand corner, down to 9999, and hardly a week went by that we didn't get a complaint from somebody saying, my pin code is on that web page. please shut it down.
0: <laughs>
1: yes, yes it is. So, right, anyway. So, I've had a saying for a while um, that customer friendly is often fraud friendly, it's also frustration friendly. Um, I went into a shop as a part of my transitioning here to Melbourne, and I was rather impressed to see that this particular shop, you know, the things you have to do when you set up a house and electricity and plumbing and all that type of stuff. Um, and this company had a really nice LCD screens with had these beautiful LCD protectors so that people couldn't see what was being done. Unfortunately, they were all removed because they actually needed to confirm a lot of details with the customer and getting the right line of sight was impossible. So they had all of these wonderful privacy-protecting things that were required by corporate policy were sitting behind the monitors or off to the side because they couldn't work. The people who made the policy probably never actually sat in this particular shop and saw if you were to do what we told you to do you can't actually work. That's bad. Uh oh. Um, Employees also were forced to use a cloud-based application as a bunch of VPNs. They're trying to do the right thing with security. Unfortunately, nobody did the math on latency. And so what was happening was the employees were essentially prefetching my personal information so that once the cloud app was ready to have the data put into it, they would have it already at their fingertips. And they did this by using notepad.exe and they had a whole bunch of things in like 84 point font with my name, passport, uh, date of birth, all of the stuff that was necessary to fill into this form, they had it sitting there in a notepad session ready to go. I also noticed they had about five or six other notepad sessions open, each of which seemed to have the PII, personal information of somebody else. Um, And then another one, another corporate policy required these people to have an automatic lockout due to lack of activity on 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 their machines. Now, I understand that, I understand why that's considered to be good. There's a lot of colleagues of mine over the years who just get up and walk away from their workstation rather than manually locking it because they know the enforced IT security policy by other people will automatically lock it for them. It's a little bit lazy, but they've got used to that and that's what happened here. So the workaround for that is what they all know each other's passwords because then you can unlock the session that's already locked without having to do something more invasive to the system. So, of course, I asked them, what's going on with this? And there were many more at this particular location. Um, And they said, basically, all of the reasons they've had these workarounds was because they had so many pressures on the number of customers they helped, the actual workload, the way in which the work procedures had to be, which were in direct conflict with the security and privacy guidelines. That's a shame. I don't know what happened there. It wasn't my problem. I couldn't fix it. But it was frustrating. She's telling me 10 minutes. Do you think I'm going to listen to that? I will. Don't worry. Sort of. Um, So another company had the issue where there's a spike of of thefts of laptops from uh, trains, transport, that type of thing. So after looking at the problem, the corporate security people came up with what they felt was the best solution to protect the data that was stored on corporate laptops. That solution... To that end, a company whose name will rhyme with Risco uh, (laughs) had an office near a very bad part of town in Amsterdam, maybe, sort of, and um, they had a, a spike of thefts as well because the bad guys knew when the offices would close, when people would start to leave, and they'd be waiting. Who here has seen the film L.A. Story with Steve Martin? There's a hilarious scene in that when he's at an ATM taking out money, and as he comes to get money out, a guy steps up, I'll be your mugger tonight, oh, there you go, and he just walks away. That's essentially what it was like for a while. The area was so bad for that type of theft that the police eventually put up signs saying, don't even use your mobile phone in this area because someone will come along and steal it. So I'm not sure that that policy really helped very much. And in the end, it just, again, caused people to find more creative workarounds. If I'm not allowed to use my corporate one, I'll use my personal one. Those didn't get stolen for some reason. Anyway, poorly chosen enforced policies yield very clever workarounds, not a more secure environment. Another pet peeve of mine, and this is something that I think affects a lot of people, and again goes back to that insider threat, the infrastructure, there are a lot of corporations that are still using XP Service Pack Anything. Right? They're using technology which is older than some of the attendees of this conference and all of the booth babes put together. <laughs> They're still using IE6, right? What? Seriously? Right, The issue is everywhere. And I'm not because of time, I'm not going to get into SCADA, but the, the risks of doing SCADA are self evident. So I think that archaeology, where things that are this old, things that are creating the exposure, creating the risk for our organization, yet our IT policies are mandating the use of either because of fear or lack of funding or whatever to upgrade and to cover those risks and to cover those protections, instead of doing that, we need to burn them. We need to actually go ahead, make the changes, and move forward. So, one more digression, maybe. A good friend of mine, um, very good friend of mine, one might even say a close personal friend of mine, wanted to report a computer security incident at the organization he worked for. But the website for doing so required IE6, required an ActiveX plug-in. It only worked... Coincidentally, even on IE6, it didn't work on later versions of IE, by the way, it only worked on IE6 because of some weird redirects that were being done in domain names and authentication, some weird bugs of IE6. It required six pages to be filled out with drop-downs, and there was no way to skip a section. Every field was mandatory. He got so frustrated that nobody was going to be paying attention to this that the only way that he was able to get someone to listen was to say that this was a security risk in the CEO's department, and he got a phone call within about five minutes. Um, but what it boils down to is all of these types of groups really need to be accessible. They need to be there to help. So given the time, I'm going to skip that. Let's talk a little bit briefly. I've got about five minutes or so. Thereabouts. Good. I can take a sip of water. Can you? about some of the potential solutions. I'm not saying that these are necessarily right for everyone, but I'm saying that if we step back a little bit and realize that we need to address these problems in some form of a systematic way, then we could start to make some changes, right? So I don't know how many of you are familiar with the term second base, first base, third base, right? I think some of you perhaps more so than others. And I'm not talking about uh, who's on first sketch, but um, you are probably familiar with the acronym KISS. Keep it simple, Scott. Um, plus a little bit more. That's my idea here. Basically, any security policy should be simple enough to avoid TLDR. Who doesn't know what that means? Too long, didn't read, right? It's an internet meme that's real popular at the moment. If your security policy and what you mandate your employees to do is longer than, say, a single sheet of A4, and I'm not talking in two-point font, then you're doing it wrong. You've made it too complex, you also need to keep the visibility of that policy out there, and you can't do that when you've got something that might be 10, 15, 20, 50 pages long that has to go through committee review every time you want to change the spelling of a word. Right? That's just not acceptable any longer. Um, and you need to step back away from quibbling over some of the details, and we'll come back to that in a moment. I've actually heard of people who got into b- debates about the fact that their systems were AES-128 encrypted at the hard drive level, and policy said it had to be AES-256. What? This wasn't a government organization, and I'm not sure how realistic this problem was, but yeah, there it was concept of the black box. What you make for a policy in your group, well that's a little different, you don't count, Um, in your group might be acceptable and fine within your organization. Don't try to enforce that upon others. Work on the interfaces between your group and others. Tell them, as I say, here data should be exchanged securely. Don't get pedantic about exactly what you think securely is. There's going to be so many cases where you're going to say if you try to use protocol X that it's just not going to be supported by this other other system that you must interface with that you're just going to blow out costs and it's just not doable. We have to kill the silo. The concept of security must be horizontal. There's way too many people that have security. Oh, that's, that's our job. We take care of that over here. Well, no. As I, I said, there was a, a birds of a feather session uh, last night for certs. I think there needs to be a little bit of cert in everyone. Um, and I think that we need to have security awareness throughout and horizontally within an organization, and it needs to be a part of a project development life cycle, it needs to be part of software development, and so on. I think if you're going to even include something at high level, don't forget to include incident reporting as a policy. So if there is a problem, you've got to tell someone about It seems pretty simple, and it helps to kill the silo mentality. As I mentioned earlier, traceability is just so key. You have to have systems and procedures that can help you answer the whys and the hows something happened. And the reason why that really matters is right here. When something goes wrong, make sure you understand that context or it will keep happening again. If you don't know why that file filled with credit card information was found in a temporary directory on a file server and it's there every night, then simply removing the file with a cron job at midnight won't make the problem go away. Trust me. Tools and tooling. I think that this is the biggest problem with the security generation gap. You've got the people who have the need for certain types of tools and tooling that aren't able to really get the job done because management is saying, oh, no, I saw this particular thing at a conference or got a mail shot or a phone call or a cold call, and they feel pressured. They feel as though, oh, if my uber, 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 uber boss sent me an email saying, hey, take a look at this product. Is that him saying buy it? right? So there's a communications problem there. Um, sometimes the people who have the wallets don't say the right words of look into this and let me know what you think and is this something we should buy? There's often a perceived, ooh, he mentioned product X, I'd better deploy it by Tuesday. Unfortunately, it's never an upgrade to say Mac OS X, whatever. Um, Don't fall for the snake oil. And I think that one of the biggest issues that I think a lot of people are facing today is to be able to transition the computer security incident to business as usual. So think about the tools and the tooling that are required for that because what you need to do for handling something at a technical level is not necessarily what somebody will need to do if they have to handle it on a day-to-day basis, And whether it be fraud or, or something that is less technical but sort of a rote procedure. That's going to be a different series of tools and tooling. Um, one of the biggest problems that a lot of organizations will make and I've only got one more slide so we're going to be on time um, that a lot of organizations will make is they'll put in their IT security policies and procedures details at that level, right? They'll put so much detail in you must use this particular technology you must use this port you must use SSH in order to get to this particular device. Once you document something like that changing it is such a pain in the bum I think you must know that. You've probably experienced that yourself. The document, the policy says, I have to use SSH to that. That means it's going to change the cost. Well, really what you want is a secure way of accessing the system. There might be other ways of doing that rather than mandating a specific technology. Um, Aim for some specificity in the implementation, um, but you really want to keep the the details out of high-level policy. Policy says, do it right, do it secure, let us know what broke, hug each other, be nice to your neighbors, etc. So, I really wanted to talk about a whole bunch of other things, some really cool incidents that might have involved some of these factors. For example, the Egyptian uprisings, and organized crime, and massive networks of electronic attacks, and huge sums of money, but I can't, I don't know. Maybe it doesn't have anything to do that, but sorry. Uh, Maybe next year, if they invite me back, who knows? In the meantime, closing remarks. Holy bleep, I live in Melbourne. Holy bleep, I'm married. God what a year. We do live in this world of an IT security generation gap. We need to find ways of closing it. We cannot be beholden to policies and the mentality of 50, 20, 30, even 10 years ago, too old, right? Too old, won't read. We need to be able to be more flexible. We have to accept that the popularity of the Internet is what has made a lot of us employed. And if we start, and or if we keep, rather, going forward with this, here's how we stop everything, here's how we block everything, here's how we don't let people do better work, then we're just going to be giving, getting ourselves out of our own work, out of our own jobs. So we need to find ways of bridging the operational people with the money holders. And get those people to the table with the policymakers. And of course, the most important thing is to have fun in what you do. So, with that, are there any questions? At all, please. That was too easy then. Was it boring? Was it interesting? I don't know. I can't tell. You laughed at the right parts, so that's good. Okay. If you do have questions afterwards, I am around. You tomorrow, so have a lovely afternoon and enjoy the social event.